0: Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Handling. Welcome back to Carnegie China's China in the World podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Chi Dongtao to discuss the cross-strait situation China's newly released Taiwan White Paper and the implications of US Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan. Before diving into the interview, let me introduce Dongtao. Dr. Chi Dongtao is Senior Research Fellow at the East Asian Institute, National University of Singapore. Um, I've had the pleasure of interacting with uh, Dr. Chi over the last year as I've been a visiting fellow here at the East Asian Institute. Dongtao uh, has also served as a visiting fellow at the 21st Century China Center uh, UC, UC San Diego from September uh, 2021 to May 2022. Uh, Dongtao obtained his PhD from Stanford University uh, and his research uh, has specialized in state society relations and nationalism in Taiwan and mainland China, as well as US-China-Taiwan relations. Dongtao's publications have appeared in journals like the China Quarterly, the Journal of Contemporary China, International Journal of Chinese Studies, East Asian Policy, uh, etc. Dongtao recently published a paper in the Journal of Contemporary China titled Urban Chinese Support for Armed Unification with Taiwan, uh, which I look forward to discussing uh, in today's podcast. Dongtao has also published a book Taiwan independence movement in and out of power uh, with the World Scientific Publishing uh, Unit in 2016. And currently, Dongtao is drafting a book tentatively titled Taiwan and Cross-Strait Relations Amid Great Power Competition. I'm looking forward to discussing all that today with Dong Tao. Dong Tao, thank you very much for joining me today on the China and the World podcast, and I'm looking forward to our discussion.
1: Thank you, Paul, for having me here.
0: So as a, let me start out. As a as a well-known uh, scholar paying close attention to cross-strait relations and Chinese domestic politics, uh, you've published a number of articles and papers in recent years that look at developments in Taiwan and cross-strait relations. And in a recent article that you did uh, for Think China, uh, which I think came out last month, uh, you point out that uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi's visit is quote, arguably the inevitable outcome of growing US-China rivalry. Uh, I'd like to just start out by asking you to say a little bit more about this. You know, how do you see the rivalry between China and the US impacting on the cross-strait situation today? Thank
1: you for the question. Uh, I think from Beijing's perspective, uh, Washington's Taiwan policy has always been part of its China in other words, it has been subordinate to its China policy. So when engagement with Beijing was the mainstream policy in Washington, Washington won't challenge Beijing with the Taiwan issue. But when containment or competition has become the norm in Washington, Taiwan will become a card for Washington to play against Beijing. This is Beijing's perspective. This is Beijing's view. So for Beijing, this view has been confirmed again and again in recent years as they have seen a parallel rise in Washington's pressures on China on the one hand and in its support for Taiwan. So as China's recent white paper on Taiwan issue shows, a new priority for China's Taiwan policy is anti-interference, especially the interference by the United States. So from Washington's perspective rising competition with China has significantly raised strategic importance of Taiwan for the United States national interest. Losing Taiwan to China would profoundly damage American national interest in various fields. So in Washington, supporting Taiwan and even helping to defend Taiwan internally has become a bipartisan consensus Mm under this competition backdrop. Washington especially the Congress, has been reconsidering Taiwan policy, which now they believe made so, made too many consensus compromises Mm -hmm. previously on the Taiwan issue of Beijing. So in the new strategic competition context, this uh, compromise seemed not only unnecessary, but also kind of foolish. So they have been revising this policy by the most support to Taiwan. The most recent and the most significant case is the Taiwan Policy Act. Right? Right. So this is my general observation about how competition has Mm -hmm. impacted the two countries position on
0: Taiwan. Thank you for that. Uh, There's a lot to unpack there. But I think your main point as I take it is, you know, the US has shifted to a new framework uh, dealing with China under this new rubric of strategic competition. Uh, and that started in the Trump administration. Uh, previously, uh, presidents uh, followed uh, a, a, a framework of engaging China, engagement. Uh, and in this new framework of strategic competition, uh, you believe that the United States looks at the Taiwan issue differently than it has in the past. And, um, you know, others in the U.S. have argued, and 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 as you know better than anyone, there's a bit of a you know, blame game that goes on between the U.S. and China as to, you know, why uh, each side is taking the actions uh, that it is taking. And the U.S. argument is it is growing concerned with China's increased coercion of Taiwan militarily, economically, uh, with regard to squeezing Taiwan's diplomatic space. Um, you know, some will argue; most Americans, experts would 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 not argue that they're seeing Taiwan differently in the strategic competition framework, but rather they're responding to Chinese actions. Um, China, of course, uh, points to US actions uh, and and changes and uh, uh, lays and, and says that it's taking the actions that it in large part because of those changes. I wanna talk about Secretary, uh, I'm sorry, Speaker of the House Pelosi's recent visit uh and, and and the aftermath of that, both in the US, you mentioned the Taiwan Policy Act, and I want to mm-hmm. talk about that. But let me start out by talking about um the China's reactions. Uh, you know, China responded uh to Pelosi's visit um by um uh, instituting economic coercion measures, extensive military drills around Taiwan. Uh and, and in a sense, kind of creating a, a new normal, regularizing kind of an upgraded military posture around Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, uh, some right. recently I've heard in the US are arguing that, you know, China really took a maximum advantage of Pelosi's visit to put the PLA in a more military adva- advantageous position. In the China, the PLA now has a persistent and consistent presence in the air and the water around Taiwan, which gives it a military advantage, considerable. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they can wear down, you know, operational capabilities of Taiwan. Uh, It allows the PLA to figure out new ways to put pressure on Taiwan. And that the PLA can sort of expand and kind of contract this pressure without now eliciting much of a response from the U.S. or other regional actors. Mm -hmm. Um, And I heard one expert this week describe it as, a uh, PLA's new position as a noose around Taiwan that they can expand or contract uh, using gray zone tactics. How, what's your perception of the China China's response? Is that is that an accurate assessment that I've laid out? Uh, does it give the PLA a, a greater military advantage? And in that context, you know, was the 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 timing of Pelosi's visit wise?
1: Yeah, I largely agree with that view. Actually, um, I think. Uh, <laughs> When I talk to the Chinese scholars on this issue, they usually uh, use a Chinese term, Ho uh, Fa Ji. I'm not sure how to translate it, but fa means uh, uh, we react. Uh, we, our action is just a reaction to your uh, offense or aggression. Mm-hmm. means, uh, although we react to your uh, aggression, but because our reaction is kind of more aggressive, so we can defeat you. So mm. they, they use this whole term to describe the, their military reaction to Pelosi's uh, Taiwan visit. I think mm. that's kind of a, um, a interesting and effective term to summarize Chinese uh, strategy uh, in terms that's of true. dealing with, uh, yeah, in terms of dealing with uh, Washington's uh, uh, policies on Taiwan. So mm-hmm. it means that, just as you said, as you cited those uh, American experts view that when they uh, use this whole strategy, uh, they tend to achieve some advantageous uh, positions militarily on the Taiwan issue.
0: We've seen that in the South China Sea and the East China Sea as well, correct?
1: Yes, I think yeah. Starting actually from uh 2012 on the of issue, yeah.
0: And um, as the as as China, you know, attains a greater greater military advantage and enhances their military coercion uh, toward Taiwan. We're also seeing some some changes uh, out of the U.S. One of the interesting aspects that I wanted to ask you about is is President Biden's uh, comments about the you know basically claiming that the U.S. would defend Taiwan in the event of uh, a, a, a an attack by uh, China of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know he's done this a number of times. Um, people speculate whether you know it's a gaffe or a mistake or whether he's just simply misspeaking. Um, but, you know, he's done it four times now. And and uh, most recently he said uh, U.S. would defend Taiwan in the event of an unprecedented attack. I think he probably meant unprovoked, but that's just my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the fourth time that Biden has said this. Um, I get the sense that, you know, as China uh, enhances its own military coercion and activities around Taiwan, uh, that 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 this may be part of a an effort to to deter or to head off a decision by the Chinese leadership to take military action. But what what is your sense and 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 what impact is are those comments having on the situation?
1: I think increasingly in China's government um, um, distrust of what Washington uh, said about their one China policy. Uh, every time President Biden said that um, uh, he believed that, uh, you know, Washington will uh, defend the Taiwan militarily, the Washington and the White House uh, would come out and say that one China policy hasn't uh, changed. So uh, Beijing has been facing a situation, whether to believe uh, President Biden or believe Uh, The White House uh, statement that one China Mm. policy hasn't Mm. changed. So it's a kind of uh, uh, conflicting uh, message to Beijing. And uh, so this kind of uh, conflicting message has been repeated uh, uh, a few times, as you mentioned. So I think the trust of Beijing in Washington, uh, in President Beijing, uh, the Congress, and the White House uh, will continue to you know, going down, to go down, I mean, uh, to decline. Mm-hmm. So this, mm-hmm. yeah, this, this is definitely not good for the U.S.-China relations.
0: The, the Taiwan Policy Act um, has gotten a lot of attention as well. And uh, yes. it uh, came out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week uh, and was sent uh, to the Senate. Uh, it'll go to the Senate and then ultimately the House and and maybe on to the President. I'm not sure how fast that'll happen. I don't think it'll happen before the midterms. But nevertheless, uh, there's a lot of attention, um, and I'm interested in in your view of the impact of, of this uh, act. It could change quite a bit. Frankly, we should say that. It has already changed coming out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I would say the the more provocative symbolic aspects of the act uh, have really been toned down. Uh, w- one is that the act was uh, uh, originally designating Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. Now it talks about treating Taiwan as a, a major non-NATO ally, uh, which is which is a pretty significant difference. Uh, and then the other has to do with uh, Designating the uh, the Taiwan office in Washington D.C., which is called the Taiwan Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office, uh, the original version uh, would change that to designate that office as the Taiwan Representative Office. Those two have been changed uh, mm-hmm. and toned down quite a bit. Um, what's your sense of how this is being interpreted? You know how this is being viewed in uh, Beijing. And what kind of impact this will have on the cross-strait dynamics?
1: Yeah, this is very, very important uh, policy. It's kind of an overhaul of uh, American Taiwan policy, and uh, I have heard from uh, some Chinese diplomats about their serious concern of of this policy. Uh, Some of them said that this policy, this, I mean, this uh, new bill, if passed. Uh, would trigger a larger crisis than the policies Taiwan really did. So uh, they really, they're really concerned about it. But the official response from the Chinese government about this uh, uh, act, the Taiwan Policy Act, is that uh, because this act has not passed, uh, it has not been signed into law, and we haven't seen the, the final version of this act. Uh, so we need to wait and see the final version. And based on the final version, uh, we will you know, adopt use some appropriate uh, uh, reaction responses. So Beijing is still wait and see, and hoping that the White House can have further negotiation with the Congress to re- further revise this uh, act to be less, much less uh, provocative, uh,
0: as you mentioned. That's- yeah, that's interesting. thank you for that. You, okay. you know, I what I what I, I what I try to um, ascertain uh, in engaging Chinese experts is what 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 specifically uh, they're worried about. We and the reason I say that is there is all there's often this dynamic uh, Dong Tao, and I know you you have seen this. I, I remember the Taiwan Travel Act uh, and the Trump administration came out and the mm-hmm. reaction as it was as it was working its way through uh congress you know the reaction was equally as strong uh, from china you know that this mm-hmm. will uh, damage the us china relationship it, it significant damage uh you know great great concern uh but ultimately you know the impact uh has not you know has not been as significant as as initially indicated. And I wonder with the Taiwan Policy Act, whether we have a similar dynamic here. From that standpoint, do, do you have a sense what specific, when you say it would overhaul the uh, uh, United States' relationship with Taiwan, what specific elements do you think uh, Beijing is most worried about in that context? Because as I mentioned, two of the yes. symbolic aspects have already been kind of addressed yes. Uh, and and, and down.
1: Yeah, right. Um, The largest concern of Beijing, I believe, is about Taiwan sovereignty. Uh, Although the current version of the act has been uh, revised to kind of reduce the symbolism, some of the symbolism, but I still uh, keep uh, the the section on Taiwan sovereignty. That section is very important for Beijing because from Beijing's perspective, Uh, this act is trying to promote uh, the kind of uh, Taiwan status undetermined uh, theory. So this actually, this theory, this view is actually the largest difference between Americans' uh, one-China policy and uh, China's one-China principle. But nobody has talked about it or publicized this difference previously. But this act is actually trying to publicize and institutionalize this big difference between Beijing and Washington. That is Taiwan's international status has not been determined. So I I don't think that, uh, you know, Beijing uh, paid a lot of attention to the military aid or the, you know, uh, economic cooperation with with Taiwan uh, articles in the act. They paid a lot of attention to the sovereignty articles like the section on the Taiwan sovereignty. So I think that's the key.
0: Mm, mm. Well, we'll have to pay close attention to this as it uh, works its way through Congress and and see what the ultimate uh, version that uh, uh, goes to the House is. And Mm. uh, we'll continue to to, uh, stay in touch with you on this. I wanna shift uh, a little bit into looking at uh, mainland views of Taiwan, something that you've watched uh, closely. In fact, you had an article recently in the Journal of Contemporary China, uh, which uh, used survey data to examine public opinion of Taiwan in mainland China. Uh, and you know, this is an issue I think that uh, recently was highlighted uh, in and around Pelosi's visit when it looked like Chinese netizens, frankly, were pushing for even more robust responses from China. Some calling uh, to actually intercept uh, the airplane, uh, Pelosi's plane as it as it uh, heads to heads into Taiwan. Struck by a, a more robust kind of reaction than we saw even from the Chinese government. But in terms of the survey that you uh, recently did on public opinion of Taiwan in mainland China, what did you learn and? which constituencies in China are more likely to hold harder line views toward Taiwan, and, and why, why do you think that is?
1: Okay, thank you for mentioning that paper. Uh, it was published on online on August 2nd, I think, uh, the same day as uh, Pelosi wow. was visiting Taiwan. <laughs> right after the publication, uh, it received a lot of attention uh, across the world. Uh, I so I'm, yeah, I'm, I might need to spend a little bit more time on this topic uh, because first of all, I need to clarify the hardline view in our survey. The hardline view in our survey is about uh, armed unification. So we believe that there are two types of support for armed unification in China: the mod- moderate support and the radical support. The mod- moderate support is the uh, Chinese government's position, uh, meaning uh, they support uh, conditional arm unification, and that is they won't take over Taiwan by force uh, unless some extreme conditions uh, occur, like uh, those conditions uh, listed in the China's anti-secession law. So this is the moderate and government position. But mm. there's another radical position on this issue. Uh, believing that China uh, peaceful unification policy has failed. China needs to take over Taiwan uh, by force as soon as possible. This is non-governmental, non-official opinion uh, among the Chinese public, but it's, it has been rising. I mean, the supporters of this radical position has been, uh, have been increasing tremendously in recent mm. years. So previous studies, uh, usually focus on the government position, Chinese government position on the conditional arm unification. But our survey uh, was trying to find both types of support. So in the survey, we asked respondents a question, do you agree that Taiwan should not be unified with the mainland by force under any circumstances? Uh, in Chinese, this is a 请问您同意, mm-hmm. So, the, the finding is that about 39% of respondents answered yes. Yeah, they agree with it. They agree with this uh, kind of unconditional peace statement. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, yeah, about 53% of respondents answered no. They don't agree. So, when they say no, they mean that they either support the moderate uh, so, uh, position on the army unification or the radical position on the army unification. Mm. Right. So mm. uh, if we ask the quest- this question to the Chinese government spokesperson, their answer would be definitely no. They won't support this statement, right? So the 53% of the respondents uh, actually align themselves with the position on this army unification issue. Uh, um. this is background, this is uh, uh, about our very unique uh, arm identification question, uh, which mm-hmm. not be used by any sort so, so with this question, we have a few surprising findings after some uh, statistical, statistical analysis. The first is that elite Chinese are more pro-arm identification. These elite Chinese include better educated people, people with higher income, those uh, with, uh, you know, privileged occupations, uh, those with uh, urban hukou, and party member, and, and, you know, those elite groups of Chinese. This is the first uh, a surprise. This is a surprise to me because previous studies about Chinese nationalism show that, uh, actually, elite Chinese are less nationalistic on many issues. I think to me, our survey shows, at least on the Taiwan issue, at least on the unification issue, elite mm. Chinese are very nationalistic. Yeah. They are more likely to support using force against Taiwan. This is the first surprise. The second yeah. surprise is that those who have in-person contact with Taiwanese, including those who have Taiwanese friends, are more likely to support using force against Taiwan. This also surprised mm-hmm. many readers, actually, uh, because, you know, we used to believe that, you know, inter, uh, interaction and uh, exchange between the two sides of the, uh, of the Taiwan street will contribute to mutual understanding, right? The higher mutual understanding will contribute to peace, right, the scholars and the po- politicians on both sides believe this, but other mm-hmm. funding. At least in, uh, in 2019, it's the opposite, right? So it's a, it's a second surprise. The third one is that uh, after deeper analysis, we found that education is the most powerful factor contributing to the hardline view that is contributing to the support for using force against Taiwan. This is a big surprise to me because I used to believe that you know, education should contribute to peace. Right mm. to more moderate, yeah. yeah, more moderate view about the conflict, but it's opposite of uh, to my uh, previous belief. So, this is a big surprise to me, yeah. Uh, that's that fascinating. Also, right,
0: sorry, I, No, I said that's fascinating. Um, and you know, it would encourage uh, readers to, uh, and that came out on August 2nd, Journal of Contemporary China. And I encourage our listeners to. To take a look at that because it, it does sound like there's some very very interesting results. Let me shift if I could, Dongtao, mm-hmm. to the other side of the Strait, mm-hmm. and I know you've looked at that as well. Um, and how have you seen the public in Taiwan uh, reacting to Beijing's military economic, you know, countermeasures uh, toward uh, the island uh, after Taiwan's uh, after Pelosi's visit? Um, you know, how, what, what kind of impact do you think that these measures will have on perceptions in Taiwan of cross-strait relations, public opinion on these issues?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. And I think it's very interesting that the Taiwanese public was very calm before Beijing's countermeasures, including its uh, you know, unprecedented um, the military exercise. Yeah, this is very interesting. I mean, for our scholars, you know, for for, for us, you know, think tank scholars, you know, um, uh, policy analysis, we call this uh, incident a crisis, but it doesn't mm. look like a crisis to the Chinese to the Taiwanese public, as this, you know, they are very they are very calm, they are very peaceful mm-hmm. before the uh, Beijing's countermeasures, uh, so. The reason is that these countermeasures have little impact on Taiwanese economy, politics, and Taiwanese society. So it has mm-hmm. little impact actually. So it's actually very interesting that, uh, as you know, that when there is an election uh, in Taiwan, like now, the, the local elections uh, are coming in November when during the election season, when there is a military threat or other kind of threat from China, the DPP and Tsai Ing-wen, the president Tsai Ing-wen would make mm-hmm. use of that, take advantage of the military threat from China to mobilize voters for them, right? That's the euro action, uh, right. euro strategy of the DPP. But at this time, because the DPP government has this very low profile, non-proactive, a uh, strategy uh, towards the uh, Beijing's uh, countermeasures, they didn't take advantage of military threat mm. to mobilize voters for them. So this makes a military threat uh, had a very little impact on Taiwanese society, on Taiwanese politics. This is also, also very interesting.
0: Mm. That is interesting, um, and something to continue to watch because uh, it looked like a new a new approach as you describe it. Um, yes, yeah. Let Let's uh, if we could uh, wrap up with a couple questions around the PRC's new Taiwan white paper, which I know you've looked at you know very closely. On the same day that the PLA's Eastern Theater Command announced the conclusion of the military drills that they kicked off after Pelosi's visit. The Taiwan Affairs Office of the State Council released a white paper on Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, you've looked at it closely. Um, I know you've done textual analysis as well, uh, yes. and you compared it to the previous two white papers, one in, the last one in 2000, so 22 years ago, uh, and one in 1993. I have found your uh, analysis quite compelling. Some in the US have argued that, look, there's there's really not a lot of value to compare the white paper because the last one was 22 years ago. And most of the changes you know that have been made have taken place incrementally. And we've been watching them as, a, as they've changed. So there's little value in going back to look at a document that was produced 22 years ago. Let me just first ask: you know, do you agree with that, or do you think there is still some value in taking the last white paper and comparing it to the one that was just recently published?
1: Right. Uh, I actually used to have that kind of view too. Uh, especially, you know, each white paper tries to deal with different challenges in different historical periods, right? So how? So what can we gain from the comparison? But after comparing the current uh, white paper with the previous two ones, I found that the comparison still very useful. It is useful to identify both continuity and the changes in Beijing's Taiwan policy under Xi Jinping. The comparison also reveals some common characteristics shared by this white paper and other policy documents in the Xi era. So the key is actually to identify white areas compared, so that the comparison, may be uh, meaningful. Mm.
0: And in your view, uh, if you could just touch on some of the more meaningful con- conclusions in comparing uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that you found both in terms of continuity and change.
1: Right, I think uh, one of the findings is that uh, this uh, uh, white paper shows a much stronger desire of the Beijing government for unification. That's one, uh, one of the main findings that in this white paper the stronger desire for unification is indicated by the much more frequently used term reunification. It appears 121 times in current white paper, more than the combined number of that in the previous two months. Yeah. similarly, the term one country, two system appears 14 times in this one. In the current one, also more than the combined number of that in the previous two ones. Uh, this is another indication of China's stronger desire for unification. I think uh, this is not new uh, if we compare white people to under Xi Jinping's uh, government, but it's new if we compare it with the second white people. Yeah. Mm. So. Another finding is that China's commitment for more assertive hardline policy uh, is, uh, is more, uh, more significant, yeah, is more obvious to me. Because mm-hmm. this commitment for more assertive hardline policy is indicated indirectly by the term interference, Danxio and the Taiwan independence, Taidu. For Ganshe, for interference, it appears 16 times in the current white paper. And for Taiwan independence, Taidu, it appears 36 times in current white paper. Both of them, both of frequencies of those two, uh, these two terms are, are much higher than the frequencies of them in the previous one. Two white papers. Especially mm-hmm. for Taidu, for the Taiwan independence, this frequency is over three times more than that yeah. uh, than in the previous two white papers combined. So you can but, see that uh, China has a stronger desire for reunification, and they have a stronger commitment uh, for uh, assertive action to achieve reunification because they have paid a lot of attention attention to. Interference
0: to Taiwan interference, so you can see this, uh, this difference. That's fascinating. Um, I, I also have heard you, and this is this will be my last question. I, I've also heard you mention the fact that that the United States is mentioned less in this white paper than in prior papers, and I'm interested in in your view of why you think that is, especially given the noticeable uptick in U.S.-China tensions. Um, since the, 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 the prior two papers were put out. Right.
1: Um, I'm also this funding, and then I uh, look into the, each section that the term United States appears in each uh, white paper. I think the, the, my final uh, conclusion is that uh, in the current white paper, although they mentioned the United States less they use a new term, which didn't appear in the previous two uh, two white papers, that new term is external forces, Mm. so they have this new external forces term to include both United States and other countries, uh, you know, in the uh, international, uh, in the Taiwan issues. so if we combine this new term, external forces with the United States, if we combine the two terms and the frequency of these two terms, uh, external forces and the United States, the frequencies of the two terms actually is uh, much higher than the United States in the previous white okay. papers. I think the, the, the truth is, for me, the truth is that uh, Chinese government has started to realize that more countries will get involved in Taiwan issue. Mm. You join US in the Taiwan issue. So they are, they, they have realized that. So they are, this new term external forces. You know, this term is much more inclusive, right? Inclusive than yeah. just the United States. So this yeah. use this new term to include not only United States, but also possibly other countries which might get involved in the Taiwan issue in the future. So this is their new uh, narrative. I think they they are facing a new talent. So they have this new narrative of the external forces. Although they mentioned the United
0: States last. Well, that's fascinating. And um, Tao I've always uh, admired your scholarship uh, and your analysis. Um, and uh, you've, you've, you've given a demonstration of why that is today. I really appreciate your insights. You've given us a lot to think about. Um, your, your points are informative and thought provoking and I wanna just thank you for, for joining the China and the World podcast and say I've enjoyed having you as a colleague at the East Asian Institute as I do my fellowship here. Uh, and thanks as well to all of our listeners um, tell. I hope you'll come back and join us in the China in the World podcast in the future as we have more developments on the cross-strait situation. Uh, thank you, Paul, uh, for very good questions. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. And uh, be sure to check out all of the work of the Car- of Carnegie China uh, on the Carnegie Endowment's website. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Wang Yuen Hong, Michael Malinconi, and Sama Kuba. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.